Western Canada languished under an oppressive heat dome for weeks, and the results were deadly for some. The heat dome was like past years of wildfires, where Canadians with respiratory problems suffered with the smoke. But the fact that these phenomena made worse by climate change may be directly affecting our health is a connection not everyone has made. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. More than 700 people died in BC during the record-shattering heat wave, the BC Coroner Service said. And scientists have said that the intensity of that heat wave is one effect of climate change. Under the super-powered heat dome, many orchards in the southern part of the province saw their crops get sunburned. This is severe. This actually, the flesh actually cooked. Alan Gatsky inspects a heat-damaged apple on his Oyama orchard. So that takes at least around 42 before we start to see that. Despite taking steps to try and protect his crops, he's starting to see some damage from the heat wave. Our strawberries have already pretty much shut down in this heat and we're hoping that they will come back when the weather becomes normal. The cherries, we're seeing some of the early stages of burning, I'm definitely seeing the biological impact of the high temperatures where the leaves are flagging and the apples we can see damaged. Globally, we're already seeing decreasing yields in staple crops worldwide. And when I actually did end up going to work with Doctors Without Borders, so MedScience Health Frontier, and I spent six months uh, resuscitating malnourished children in a tent hospital in a slum in Djibouti, which is one of the hottest places in the world. And so we would have moms um, who had walked for hundreds of kilometers with their kids because they couldn't find them food. That's Dr. Courtney Howard. So I'm an emergency physician in Yellowknife, and just depending on how, I, I have a lot of different roles. So I'm the past president of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment. I'm also a board member of the Global Climate and Health Alliance, and I'm the head of advocacy for the World Health Organization Civil Society Working Group on Climate Change and Health. We connected with her at home. I am in Yellowknife, yeah. So okay. there's a Greek slave lake right out there. So how does an ER doc get interested in climate change? Actually, I wanted to work for Doctors Without Borders for Médecins Sans Frontières, and so they said, okay, if you want to work for us, you should go get some experience in the far north of Canada because there you'll learn how to practice without as many resources and culturally diverse populations, and that's close to what we do, so please go do that first. And so I was on my way to Inuvik as a new Emerge grad out of McGill. That was 2009. And I, I actually was embarrassed at my lack of uh, diverse knowledge because I'd been in hospitals and call rooms for the last decade and a half. And I knew basically nothing other than that. So I picked up mm. a book on climate change in the Edmonton airport. I thought, this looks like something an adult would know about. And so I read it on my way north. And by the time I got up to Nubik, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is bad news. This is not good. Because I didn't know anything about climate change, but I had been taught how to recognize badness and how to read graphs and assess an evidence base. And so I was concerned enough that I got off the plane and I basically uh, went and on the very, very slow internet connection, did a lit review. And that was right after the Lancet had put out its first commission on climate change that said that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century. Mm. And so I was astonished because we didn't learn that at medical school. And so I essentially have spent a lot of time since then making sure that doctors are aware, that policymakers are aware that climate change is the biggest health threat that, and that in fact, 
tackling climate change is the biggest health opportunity of our time as well. Courtney, if you've been in the North since 2009, you've probably seen direct effects of climate change on people's health, especially if Canada's average temperature is rising faster than the rest of the world. Have you seen the health of Canada's northern peoples directly affected by climate change? Absolutely. So Canada as a whole, as you were mentioning, is warming at double the global rate. And here in the north, we're warming at triple the global rate. So what what I see, uh, Yellowknife is the referral center for the entire northern part of uh, Canada, really the middle part. And so we're the only CAT scanner. So mm. if you bonk your head badly up in Inuvik, you do still come down to see me in Yellowknife. And so I talk to people from all over the north. And so especially people who live very close to the land, um, the Mackenzie River Delta, they're three degrees Celsius warmer than they were when an 80 year old elder was born. So that means that the ice is forming later, it's less stable to travel on. That's really um, the way that people access food uh, from the land in the winter. So hunting is more difficult, fishing is more difficult, the potential for, for drowning and trauma is, is higher. And because the landscape is looking so different, um, there's a permafrost scientist in town, Steve Coquel. He says that change is happening on the scale of a human lifetime. And what the elders say is that when they were little, there weren't any landslides. And now there's landslides all over the place. So the technical term for that would be a permafrost slump. So basically, if the permafrost melts at the bottom of the hillside, it can destabilize the entire hillside mm. as further permafrost melts. And so it creates what looks like a landslide. And then of mm. course here in Yellowknife in the summer of 2014, we had hundreds of fires ringing the town. And as an right. eMERGE doc, there was a day where I just saw pretty much only asthma, uh, people with asthma exacerbations coming into the, em the emergency department. So we decided to do a study on that. And it turned out that we had this two and a half month smoke exposure, which was in fact, when I looked into it, one of the longest and most severe in the entire global literature base. And so we ended up with twice as many uh, emergency department visits for asthma as usual, a 50% increase in our community dispensation of breathing medicines. And when we asked people, because we did a qualitative study as well, 30 interviews uh, partnered with the Kagatu First Nation and the Yelena's Dene, people said, that didn't feel very good. You know, we were anxious, we were irritable, we felt disconnected from the land, there wasn't enough physical activity. And it made us wonder what, if it's this bad now, what will climate change bring for our children? It seems to me that you don't necessarily have to live as close to the land as, you know, some traditional Indigenous and Inuit people might do in order to feel the effects of, uh, of climate change. I mean, right uh, in, in late June, early July, uh, Western Canada trapped under this heat dome and setting uh, land temperature records for the entire nation and seeing exponential increases in, in sudden deaths due to these sorts of things. And then you even you look a few, uh, or due, due to the heat and then even you look back uh, a few years past and perhaps even coming up this season, wildfires uh, exacerbating uh, asthma uh, in uh, for, for all sorts of people. I mean, it is is that the list of, is it just going to be like heat exhaustion, sudden death from, 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 um, from, you know, the excess heat and then also say uh, respiratory asthma type uh, problems. Are those the only sorts of health problems you see that could be happening as a result of global warming climate change? So those are really important impacts. And certainly since uh, we had our bad wildfire season in 2014. There have been multiple severe episodes since then. So Fort McMurray had their mm -hmm. big fire. And in fact, their hospital had to be emergently evacuated. 
And then BC had really bad fires a couple of years ago, and many of their um, healthcare facilities also had to be evacuated. So there was a disruption um, for the staff, for displaced people. All of that leads to feelings of, um, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes, depending on how the evacuation went, lingering anxiety. And we also see um, there's already been reports of basically longer and more severe pollen seasons. And some of mm. that is really has been logged across the prairie. So that makes it difficult for people with um, allergies. And of course, when you think about what this is doing to food crops, there's a doctor who has uh, an organic farm um, in one of the BC Gulf Islands. And he found me online and he said, Courtney, our fruit is actually burning on the trees. What is this going to mean for food security? And certainly right. globally, we're already seeing decreasing yields in staple crops worldwide. And when I actually did end up going to work with Doctors Without Borders, so Medsanx Yale, and I spent six months uh, resuscitating malnourished children in a tent hospital in a slum in Djibouti, which is one of the hottest places in the world. And so we would have moms um, who had walked for hundreds of kilometers with their kids because they couldn't find them food. So you could imagine, you know, if, if, if my children didn't have food, I would do pretty much anything to get them food. I think we all would. And that might mean you might move. So then we're talking about displacement, whether it's internal or external. Sometimes people don't like it. Uh, when other people come to where they are, there's the potential for really kind of unstable populations that can be a, then if there's other stressors, like what we saw in Syria, there was a five year long uh, climate related drought there. And then when additional stressors in the form of the Arab Spring arrived, it was sort of one other factor where this displaced population um, had additional uh, reason to be angry enough to erupt into conflict. And so there's overlapping um, elements associated with this that, that have the potential to impact things like governance, supply chains, and our ability to run the healthcare systems we depend on for health as well. As you're talking about all of these interconnected things that are happening, something that comes to mind for me is the idea that, um, if I recall from my high school biology courses, uh, the human body is, is just a collection of complex systems and they're all interconnected. And, uh, you know, when somebody becomes ill, it's, it's, it's uh, one of those systems is, is not uh, performing properly or is out of balance or there's, some, or there's some, some acute problems with one of the systems, we'll say, you know better than I do being a doctor. But um, it seems to me that, you know, as you're talking about everything with, the, with, with kind of the interconnected nature of effects of climate change, is it too far of a leap to say that the earth can be treated and, and, and like climate change can be treated like the human body uh, in terms of it being both uh, a collection of very complicated systems. Have you been talking to Nicole Redvers, one of our local Indigenous scholars? No. I... <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly the point she's been making, is hmm. that, um, and I've been lucky to do my learning on this, in a place where Indigenous thought is in the majority. And so in Western science, we have, we've been sort of brought up with an unconscious story in our head um, it's described as ego, where man is at the top of the pyramid and kind of everything else is underneath and it exists to serve us and we are sort of, you know, the rulers. And the indigenous concept that uh, Dr. Redvers talks about is an eco concept where we are part, just one element in an interrelated system of living organisms and we all depend on one another for health. And so the analogy you brought up in terms of the earth as its own system is one I think about a lot because in the emergency department, say for instance, somebody 
has an anaphylactic reaction to a bee sting. Mm. If they take their EpiPen immediately while all of their other systems are still working, things go really well. And it's one of the easier things that we see in the emergency department. They feel horrible. They take their EpiPen. Then half an hour, an hour later, most of the time they feel great. And we watch them for a little while and then they can go. However, if there's a delay to that initial treatment, such that what, what, what tends to happen is a lot of inflammatory mediators get, get um, released and then there's more trouble with blood pressure. And then of course, if there's trouble with blood pressure, different organs stop working. And so the compensatory mechanisms don't work as well. So then we could give epinephrine, you know, an hour or two later, but it doesn't have the same impact as it would have had initially Very early. because there's yeah. all these other systems that are already not working. And so our task now, and you probably saw that there was this uh, leaked IPCC draft that was talking mm -hmm. about tipping points and about the potential for us to be approaching some of the tipping points in terms of, you know, methane release from melting permafrost and, you know, the darkened surface of the Arctic once the, the white reflective snow is no longer there. And instead we're talking about an absorptive dark surface. So right now, we're really in a race from a greenhouse gas reduction standpoint where we need to emergently provide the treatment of decreasing greenhouse gas emissions before the planet's compensatory mechanisms stop working and we end up in a positive, sort of a, a positive feedback cycle in terms of things not, not working. So really our task right now is to create social tipping points such that our behavior shifts quick enough that it provides decisive signals to both markets and decision makers so that we can quickly take advantage of you know the technical solutions that we've already got whose prices have come down such that in many cases it's actually cheaper to make electricity uh, from solar and wind than from any other reason we've got the solutions we need now it's just a matter of getting it done almost sounds like you've read bill gates on how to avoid a climate disaster i haven't but i've read a whole oh. heck of a lot of other things uh, i've been <laughs> Through all the behavioral change um, literature and back over the last little while, it's uh, the paper I'm writing up today, and and it's 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 really interesting because human ingenuity, uh, human technical ingenuity, has come up with the solutions we need, and now it's really human organizational ingenuity that needs to come up with behavioral solutions. And certainly, you know, I'm seeing. We know that whenever there's a trigger like this, like what with our wildfires, you know, these heat emergencies, the wildfires in BC, it's a moment where the diagnosis of climate change and what it means for people and the people they love lands with a whole new cohort of people. So I'm really very conscious that right now in Canada and around the world, there are people who are feeling really worried. They're feeling anxious. They're feeling sad. Often people, we all feel guilty because we're all part of this. And, and sometimes anger. And so I just want to encourage people to share those feelings with one another. It's super normal to be feeling that way. I've done some work on ecological grief and anxiety. And when I got a group of world experts together to take a look at that last year, what we agreed is that it's in many ways a necessary step. You know, I think of it as when I'm in the emergency department and I give someone bad news, you know, I'm, say, I, I'm sorry, we did a chest X-ray. I see something there that might be cancer. There's other tests coming your way. And I just want you to know, you know, it's important to say very clearly what's happening. It's important to make a lot of time for that, be ready to answer questions and to absorb any, any reaction that comes our way, because it's going to take time for that person to come to terms with that diagnosis and to align their expectations of the rest of their life with what it means for them. And that's a moment where I think we're at right now. 
now uh, with climate change. If you were to look at, at the situation that Canada is facing with, with climate change uh, as a patient, again, to kind of take that, that, that earth as a, pa- as, a, as a human sort of multiple complex systems idea. If you're to look at the, at the challenge with, with Canada as, as a climate, uh, a challenge that Canada has with climate change as a patient, what would the diagnosis be and what would your, your recommendation for kind of a, 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 a course of therapy, a course of, of treatment be? So we have two sprints. We have two priorities. So the first is the adaptation sprint. So we need to race to adapt to the warming we've already signed up for. You know, I I talk to a lot of people and many people will say, Dr. Howard, is this the new normal? And I have to say, you know, Environment and Climate Change Canada tell us we are going to continue to get warm until at least mid-century. So by the time a child born today is in their 20s, Canada is gonna be almost two degrees Celsius warmer than we were at a 1986 to 2005 baseline that was itself warmer than it used to be. So we have to bring it into our common vision that we are going to have increasing wildfires. We are going to have increasing heat waves. And that means that we need to do things like make sure that all of our communities know our evacuation plan. Doctors need to prescribe breathing medicine before wildfire season so people don't have to, you know, wait until it's really smoky and then go outside when it's smoky to get the refill. We need to make sure our hospitals are equipped with ventilation systems that allow us to continue to operate in the middle of, of smoke. We actually had to close ours during our, our bad wildfire episode. Mm. And those types of, of adaptations need to happen in every institution, taking into account all of the different factors. So fires, floods, heat emergencies. So that's the adaptation sprint. And that requires bringing the reality of continued warming into our common vision. The second one is the mitigation sprint. So the mitigation sprint is what will determine what happens when a child born today is in their 60s. So right now we're on this high emissions pathway. It is gonna, we're just going up. We're just gonna keep going up. And what Environment and Climate Change Canada tell us is it could get to 6.3 degrees Celsius warmer by the time a child born today is in their 60s if we stay on the high emissions pathway. And there is the risk that we may soon bust through some of these tipping points and lose control of the ability to control the planetary uh, ecosystem. So, so this is, we can't say we're going to hit net zero by 24, by 2050, and then kind of sit back and pat ourselves on the back. Like we need that, that decrease needs to come right now. And so that means, you know, the, the clearest thing we need to do, we need to stop subsidizing fossil fuels with our taxpayer dollars. That is absolute, that there, there's no way around the fact that if 20% of global premature deaths are as a result of fossil fuel related air pollution, you know, the Canadian numbers put the deaths for those years on a par on the same magnitude as the number of Canadians who are dying of the coronavirus. Can you imagine subsidizing the coronavirus with our taxpayer dollars? Mm-hmm. It's not the act of a society that is going to be able to protect the health of its population. Mm-hmm. We need to stop that immediately. And then we free up money to subsidize other things. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon.